New details tonight on a Bay Area mystery that dates all the way back to the 1870s. In May of 2016, construction workers struck a hard metallic object while remodeling a home in San Francisco. It turned out to be a small box with glass windows. When they wiped away the dirt and looked more closely, they saw a little girl behind the glass. She had no name and little was known about her background or her history, but her preserved body left behind a number of clues. She was holding what appeared to be a red rose. The girl's lace dress, delicate skin, and curly blonde hair were fully intact, down to the sprigs of lavender in her hair. She looked like a doll that had been buried just days before. But in fact, she was a human three-year-old girl who had been there for over 140 years, preserved perfectly by her airtight casket. And no one knew who she was. This is a story of death and devotion in a city in flux. Oh, that sounds exactly like the beginning of a horror film. <laughs> but that didn't stop volunteers like Alex Snyder. I'm always drawn to unusual mysteries. And, and I really enjoy telling untold stories. And so working on the Oddfellow Cemetery for me was like the perfect side project to have. The Oddfellow Cemetery, where this little girl had been buried 140 years ago, had been relocated to Colma about 10 miles south of San Francisco, around 1920. In fact, most San Francisco cemeteries were moved during that time to make room for the living, much like today, demand for real estate in the city far exceeded supply. I built out a small section of the cemetery and figured out which uh, family lot, or lots rather, because there's a couple, uh, three actually, that intersected um, the backyard of this home. Alex worked with a nonprofit called Garden of Innocence. Over the course of about a year, he and the other volunteers studied haphazard cemetery layouts and 800 pages of burial records just for this one neighborhood. That's around 30,000 people, and they did this all for free. Yeah, it's so much work. And after using these methods to figure out the most likely identity, they traced family trees and did some LinkedIn sleuthing to identify a living relative, a man. And they obtained a swab from him so they could compare the girl's DNA to his. After all this, they figured out that the mystery girl was Edith Cook, the daughter of a wealthy family. She was born in 1873. Less than three years later, she became ill and died. Her younger sister, Ethel, grew up to be a socialite. In a news clipping, the Grand Duke Boris of Russia was said to have drunk a toast out of one of Ethel's slippers at a banquet and declared her the most beautiful American woman he had ever seen. Their father Horatio's leather belting business, H.N. Cook Belting, lasted over a century until the 1980s, when it merged and eventually became Hoffmeyer Company Incorporated. They still make conveyor belts and other industrial supplies. I know this sounds cliche, but history really is buried all around us. And since this story is taking place in my neighborhood and I live in a ground floor apartment, it really makes me curious about what is underneath my own apartment. You're right to wonder. It turns out the case of Edith Cook was just the beginning. A bigger mystery was yet to come. I learned that there were three other sets of remains that had turned up 
and all of these individuals had been, you know, remained unidentified. And I was like, well, I wonder if I can apply the same rough methodology that was used to identify Edith Cook to these other people. And that was the time that uh, LJ, um, you know, contacted me and (laughs) basically I did. I was like, I know, like I may sound like a total crazy freak, but I'm into buried stuff. (laughs) Is that actually what you wrote? Uh, something along those lines. That's LJ Moore. She's into funerary decorations, ravens, and she also has an interest in the shipwrecks beneath San Francisco's downtown. But that's another story. LJ is also a writer and a friend of mine from a writing group. I remember her coming in, buzzing with excitement when the Edith Cook story first broke. The puzzle parts of it intrigue me. The science part, like what people are able to find out from the DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just on a really personal level, this idea that history is so in flux in this city. It's just completely in flux. I mean, these are people who made their lives here 140 years ago, were buried with the idea that their bodies would stay there forever, Mm -hmm. and that's not what happened. In 1900, San Francisco banned new burials within the city, and new cemeteries began to crop up in Colma. Twelve years later, and six years after the Great Earthquake, San Francisco evicted all existing cemeteries as well. Colma was officially founded in 1924 as a necropolis, and around this time, about 150,000 bodies were moved there from San Francisco. Edith Cook was just one of many graves that slipped through the cracks during the hurried relocation. The relocation cost about $10 per grave and marker. For context, $10 in 1920 is about $130 today. If families couldn't afford the fee... Then the bodies were reburied in mass graves, and the gravestones were recycled in various parts of the city. For those in or visiting San Francisco, if you walk through Buena Vista Park on Haight Street, which was the bohemian epicenter in the 60s, look down. Beneath your feet are old gravestones. If you look closely, you can still read some of the inscriptions. These gravestones are all along the water near Fisherman's Wharf. Every time I walk by, I try to look for inscriptions, but not surprisingly, those are long gone, washed away by the waves. We drove to Colma to see what a modern necropolis is like. In a quarter mile, your destination will be on the right. Welcome to Colma. According to Colma's website, The living population today is a little over 1,500 people. The population of the dead outnumbers them nearly 1,000 to 1. There are about 1.5 million graves, many of them moved from San Francisco at the turn of the century. To put this number into perspective, the population of San Francisco, even today, is still well under 1 million people. As a result of this imbalance in the population, there's a funny motto on the town's website. It's great to be alive in Colma. And I can't say that without doing this, like, funny arm-swinging motion. And I imagine everyone who says that does it, too. (laughs) (laughs) This fog really makes this quite atmospheric. Oh, yeah. 
Part of the reason we went to Colma was to find some of the relocated graves. Famously, Phineas Gage is buried there. He's the railroad worker who survived a horrific accident where his brain was essentially skewered by a metal spike. It turns out it was a lot harder than we expected to find any of the older graves because these cemeteries are huge. I was thinking when I got on board with this, like when you, you know, how do you go about removing a body, right? And they were going through, you know, they hired people, workmen to go out and they were just doing it quickly. They're just kind of crashing through, I think, the rotting coffin, pulling out what was inside, putting it in a box, and then just move on to the next one. And depending on the states of decay, like say somebody's just bones, right? They're not going to get everything. They might try, but it just hadn't occurred to me there'd be little bits like, you know, um, knuckle and feet bones, you know, a hand, you know, with a wedding ring, like... And so what we're looking at isn't whole, like whole people, it's parts mm-hmm. of people. But Yeah, I think, I think there's probably thousands, hundreds of thousands of bones scattered over this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Yeah, in some cases, like that of Edith Cook, the bodies were missed entirely during the relocation. But as LJ and Alex said, most of the remains are likely just parts of skeletons. And these are still scattered throughout the city, waiting for residents to find them as they renovate their homes or start new building projects. The individuals that we were researching in the northwestern part of the cemetery, like LJ said, they were just um, really just parts of skeletons. Mm -hmm. So just a few arm bones, um, part of a leg bone. In most cases, you find an arm in San Francisco and the rest of the body was moved to Colma 100 years ago. So how do you, one, identify who that arm belonged to, and two, reunite that arm with the rest of the body and maybe the rest of the family in Colma? CSI makes it look so easy, but in reality, identifying remains is no small task. You can't just collect DNA from remains and search for a relative. For all kinds of ethical and privacy-related issues, DNA databases are typically off-limits to the public. Plus, if someone hasn't done a DNA test, their information isn't in any system at all. This is why LJ and Alex often turn to artifacts uncovered with the bodies, as well as archival records. Analyzing the bones will only get you so far. The artifacts hint at details about when the people lived and died, and they can be the key to matching a set of remains with a name. For me, I've always been interested in funerary um, decorations, and so long before I I lived here, I spent some time in central New York, um, where cemeteries are a different kind of thing. Instead of being these large um, garden cemeteries where you have a lot of people in one space, they had hamlet cemeteries where each town... So everything in the east is spread out. It's like you don't, except for the major cities, you have villages, and then you drive 10, 15 miles, and there's another village, and each village has its own burial ground. So one thing I that happened to me there was that I would be out hiking, and I would come across a random set of like 30 graves, and um, they would all have these intricately carved headstones. So I got really into like what are the motifs? Like, what are the images on these headstones? Who was doing this as a job at this time frame? And like, I got really into following certain carvers that were working in a certain period of time. Yeah, so I had this interest like long before this happened. 
So um, coffins are decorated, especially at this time. The Victorians loved ornate decorations. And you'll have like hammered metal fleur-de-lis and like different um, types of decorations that mean they have meaning like they can have religious meaning they can point out a certain time frame they can uh, point out socioeconomic status like whether people had the money to spend on a high-end coffin with all the bells and whistles or if it was not um so i get really into the artifacts that are found along with that anecdote right there really illustrates the personality traits that make lj so good at what she does this work requires meticulous attention to historical details that would otherwise be lost to time. Another artifact that LJ and Alex investigated was a Carhartt button found with a set of remains. Carhartt is a clothing manufacturer that made railroad workers' uniforms. And this being San Francisco, you could imagine that this brand would have been fairly common at the time. So I ended up finding on LinkedIn the Carhartt company has a historian. <laughs> And he was, like, excited to answer questions. And I said, you know, when did they start making the buttons with the name on it? And this one was metal. And he hadn't heard. Usually they're or wood. Yeah. Wood. Yeah, yeah. Right. And now they're metal. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm like, do you know of any that are wood in your collection that have the name? And he's like, no. In fact, I would like to see that if you have one, you know. Um, but it ended up being that we think the Carhartt button was just... Um, like in the dirt, and it had nothing to do A button with. probably just fell off a construction worker's clothes, and it happened to be recovered at the same time and place as the human remains. This sort of trap must be so easy to fall into, but just because an object is uncovered with remains doesn't mean it has anything to do with that body. That's very true, but an object is also what made one set of remains stand out to them. Um, one of the things that they found, which makes this case uh, so interesting and, and unique, is they found uh, a wedding ring, a wedding band, um, that had initials in it. And specifically, this wedding band has two sets of initials, person one to person two. The writing on the ring was an old-timey script that was kind of hard to read. They're lucky that they uncovered the ring because otherwise they would have only had an arm and a part of a leg to work with. So from here, they need to figure out the names that correspond to those initials, which are probably the man whose remains were found and his wife. Initially, we were looking for an L surname. Really, like, we, we've just, we didn't find a good match at all. And it was pretty discouraging. Um, and it was right around that time that uh, I don't think either one of us could really see a good path, clear path forward. Two things happened. LJ found uh, the, the engraver script, and maybe you can you can talk a little bit about that. I just was staring at the letters and thinking, um, well, why is that an L? The first copper plate alphabet I pulled up, I went, wow, an L and an S are really similar, and that's not an L. And then I wrote to him, and I was really excited. I was like, I may be totally wrong, but look at this script. This is not an L. This is an S. It was like an opening. We had kind of gone into a dead end, and suddenly, hey, it could be an S. From there, LJ narrowed it down to about 2,000 names, less than 10% of what she started with. While LJ worked on combing through mountains of cemetery records, Alex worked on reconstructing the cemetery based on old maps. So the, the Oddfellow Cemetery was organized into about 40 different sections. Each section had a name. And these sections were comprised of tiers, um, so like rows of graves. Okay. 
and these tiers had numbers. So the wedding band and its owner's remains were uncovered beneath one particular residence. LJ and Alex had a sense for the general region of the cemetery where this ring was buried. But they needed a way to narrow down the number of candidate plots. The point of Alex's mapping project is to take the original cemetery layout and overlay the structures that were built on top of the land following the hurried relocation. Around the time of the, the engraver script revelation, um, LJ had also found uh, an aerial photograph of the area. Now, the holy grail of this project has always been an aerial photograph of the cemetery, like pre-1931, 1932. Uh, it's not exactly of the cemetery, but you see the cemetery in the background. Alex sent a recent update. He says they're now absolutely convinced they've uncovered the identity of CR and JHS and they're now working on sharing their results. Alex and LJ have been painstakingly digitizing their efforts to make things easier for future cases. LJ has turned 700 pages of cemetery records into a searchable spreadsheet, and Alex has made a detailed searchable map of all the graves in Oddfellow Cemetery. The Oddfellow Cemetery has not uh, given up on giving. I have a feeling that because of what we've seen there's gonna be more so like i have no doubt in my mind that there will be more remains found as people renovate their backyards Mm -hmm. and garages and you know it'll be nice to be able to say hey we've got everything ready to go Mm -hmm. we can figure out who that was lj and alex have been working together on this project for nearly two years at this point on a volunteer basis and on top of full-time jobs and relationships Honestly, I can say that in this this one project, I have hundreds of hours. That's crazy. I don't know if I could get more specific than that. Okay. I don't. I don't know if I'd want to. <laughs> That's fair. It's crazy to think of the time LJ and Alex have devoted to this project, but they do it because for them, it's deeply personal. And if you look in the the records, I mean, that's why I can't work on the digitizing very long at a time because you'll get families where. Um, you know, diphtheria came through um, or um, uh, typhoid or, you know, some kind of disease came through and it hit every child in that mm. household. And you'll see them separated by just a few days. And mm. uh, for me, it's really hard because I just think, imagine like losing all your kids in one sweep like that. It's just so hard. All of the bodies that were moved to Colma, and all the fragments that have been left behind, they were someone's kids, sisters, brothers, parents. They were people who lived and died in San Francisco. And as LJ said earlier, they thought they would stay here, at rest with their families forever. So for LJ and Alex, this work is an expression of their devotion to the city, its history, and the people who made their lives here. And for us, uncovering these layers of history is a way to confront the transience of life. I think it's amazing that something that seemingly permanent can disappear as well as it did. I mean, it's just, I don't know, I might, get, I might be getting all philosophical again, but just the fact that someone can build the cemetery, which I think started in like 1866, the plan, mm-hmm. and then have all these 28,000 people buried there and then it's gone. It's just amazing to me. Yeah. 
Since we spoke with them for this story, Alex and LJ found that someone named Amalia Rodenbeck was mistaken for JHS's wife, Conradine Shore. Conradine was actually buried on top of her husband, a discovery that further highlights the complexity of this project. The team has presented these results to the San Francisco Historical Society and the Society of California Archaeology. As LJ says, this project has been equal parts painstaking reconstruction, stubbornness, hope, curiosity, drive, and epiphany. And it's with this spirit that they continue their efforts to identify Amalia and others lost to history. This episode was produced by Jenny Chi, Jennifer Fish, Ralph St. Louis, and me, Kate Waronowitz. You can find a transcript of this episode along with photos, references, and the music in this episode at our website, bonelibradio.org. Now that season two is in full swing, say hi. We're on Facebook, Twitter, uh, and you can reach us by email. Another way to help our show is to rate us or review us on Acast, iTunes, or however it is that you listen to podcasts. It helps us spread the word. Thanks for listening.